for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We are excited to have Dr. Corey Barkman as the guest for today's episode. Corey Barkman is a neuroscientist and geneticist. She received a BS in biochemistry from the University of Georgia and a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Corey has studied the relationships between genes, circuits, and behaviors in a genetically traceable nematode worm, C. elegans, as a faculty member at the University of California in San Francisco from 1991 to 2004, and at the Rockefeller University as the Torsten N. Wiesel Professor and the head of the Lulu and Anthony Wang Laboratory of Neural Circuits and Behavior since 2004. Corey's work has been recognized by scientific honors, including a 2012 Calvi Prize in Neuroscience, the 2013 Breakthrough Prize in Life Sciences, and she also co-chaired the NIH Working Group to the Advisory Committee at the NIH Director for President Obama's Brain Initiative. In 2016, Corey joined the James Zuckerberg Initiative as its first head of science. CCI Science has the mission of supporting the science and technology that will make it possible to cure, prevent or manage all diseases by the end of the century. This is an exciting episode with a lot of great information, so let's jump right in. Corey, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Corey, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and what you're currently working on? Sure. I grew up in Athens, Georgia, and went to the University of Georgia, and I studied neuroscience and genetics. I got a PhD at MIT, where I originally studied genetics of cancer, and then I switched over to neuroscience as a postdoc, and I've been doing it ever since. I had a laboratory at the University of California, San Francisco from 1991 to 2004, and then I moved to the Rockefeller University in New York, where I am today. I still have a research laboratory. It's the Lulu and Anthony Wong Laboratory of Neural Circuits and Behavior. And what my lab studies is how genes and the environment function through the nervous system to give rise to complex behaviors. We study that in the simple nematode worm, Cinerabditis elegans, which we love to study because we know its entire nervous system. It's transparent and you can literally look inside the worm and watch what's going on in its brain while it's thinking. It's just an amazing experimental system. It's as though it was invented for science. And for the past four years, I have been supplementing my own personal research by thinking about science as a whole in my role as the head of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, a new philanthropy founded by Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan. And we have the goal of accelerating science and using technology to make it possible to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases by the end of the century. Great. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But I was curious how, when, where, and why really did you get interested in science in the first place? I love science because I love the lab. My first job in college as a work-study student was to make fly food for a Drosophila lab. And I can't tell you how tedious and boring that was to just mix together the cornmeal and the propionic acid and put it into plates. And yet there I was in an environment with smart people who were thinking about really interesting problems and talking about them with each other. It was an evolutionary biology lab. And I was completely drawn in to the idea of working with great people, thinking about important problems. And it just, the sort of 
process of working with your hands, even though it was kind of a ridiculous thing to be doing to make fly food, also appealed to me. It's real, it's concrete. And it's that combination of the intellectual parts of solving problems, the presence of smart people and working with them to solve problems, and then actually doing things with your hands that just drew me in and I've never left. That's great. And then I read a story or I read that your lab was involved in a discovery to identify how the specific worms that you're studying detect and are attracted to the smell of artificial buttery popcorn smell. That is super interesting. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that discovery. And also, how did you even get into like studying how these worms smell buttery popcorn flavor or yeah smell? So there's always a story behind the story. There was a review article that someone wrote about this work where he said, for hundreds of years, people have not been asking why worms like buttered popcorn. Undeterred, Bartman and her colleagues have answered it. But you have to take a step back and think about what the science actually is saying. So what my lab was studying and using C. elegans to study was to try to understand how the sense of smell works. And you have to take yourself back to that period in time where we understood how vision worked. We understood how you can see the world. And that was because there are cells in your eye, in your retina, that detect light. They detect certain wavelengths of light. And they pattern in a two-dimensional array that really looks almost like a photograph of the outside world. They put pixels of light together, and then your brain processes those. And we knew what the sensors were. There were just four sensors, one that sort of does black and white, and then three that do red, green, and blue. Those are the rhodopsins. And we did not know that for other senses. We didn't know anything about how they were actually being used to detect objects in the world. And the sense of smell is really mysterious. So if the sense of light is physics, detecting different wavelengths, and location in dimensions, the sense of smell is sort of chemistry. It's all the different organic chemicals. You can smell and detect almost any random organic chemical ever made by an organism. It's kind of amazing. And it's not clear how those smells relate to each other. You can't just say, oh, there's like red and green and blue smells. The only way that people can really describe smell is to say something like, oh, that's kind of a lemony smell or that's kind of a buttery smell. And so it was a mystery in the field how you could detect all those chemicals and what it was that either your nose or your brain was doing to put those two things together. So as a geneticist, the way you study any problem is to break it. So you take a system that can do something complicated, and then you try to find mutations in different genes that don't allow that complicated thing to happen. And I discovered when I was a postdoc that worms could smell, and that like humans, they could smell almost anything. Like they could smell half the random chemicals that I bought from the MIT stockroom. And they liked some of them and they disliked others. And they would show me which ones they liked and disliked by going toward them or going away from them. And furthermore, I could show that they could tell the difference between the different smells, that they could detect one smell even if a second smell was present and so forth. So it sort of seemed like the worms were doing with the world of smell what people were doing. They were detecting lots of different things and they were making distinctions between them. But with the worms, I could try to figure out how. And then in my own lab at UCSF, together with a wonderful postdoc, Piali Sengupta, we decided to break that system. And so we looked for worms that couldn't smell certain kinds of different smells. And Piali found a worm that could smell almonds, and it could smell fruit, and it could smell potatoes, but it couldn't smell butter. And that specifically is the odor diacetyl. It's a single compound. It's the artificial 
butter that they put on popcorn in movie theaters. It's also the characteristic smell of Chardonnay is from diacetyl. And these worms were just not interested in Evel. And Piali cloned the gene that was responsible, that was mutated in this worm, and discovered that it encoded a G-protein coupled receptor. And there were already hints from work in mammals that that was going to be the mechanism, that it was going to be many different G-protein coupled receptors that were involved in sensing odors, but it hadn't been formally proved that you could assign a particular receptor to a particular odor. And that was what Piali's work demonstrated, that she was able to show that if you knocked out this one receptor, the worms could not smell butter. If you put it back in, they could smell butter again. That was also kind of a wedge or like a foot in the door that allowed us to learn that worms have a thousand different receptors, a thousand of these different molecules that detect different odors in the world. So the way that the worms detect all this chemistry is to just throw a huge fraction of their genome at solving this problem and generating lots and lots of different sensors in this lock and key mechanism to detect a huge number of odors. So I started by saying that worms can do what people can do because they can smell all these different odors. But one of the things we know now is that worms can do it better. The people only have about three or 400 of these different receptors and worms have over a thousand. So they have a richer sense of smell even than we do. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. But really, what does this discovery mean for science and how can this knowledge now be used for further research? So like any discovery in science, answering one question puts you in a position where you can then ask the next question. So the first question we wanted to know is, how does this even work? How are odors even detected? But then that let us ask the next set of questions like, well, how does the brain know what odor was detected? And one of the things that really fascinated us that we could use this molecule to study is why do you like some smells and dislike others? What is it that makes an odor attractive or repulsive? And we used this diacetyl receptor, the gene's name is odor 10, to answer that question. So ordinarily, worms were really attracted to this buttery smell. If we took away the receptor, they couldn't respond to it. And the question is, how do they learn to do this? Is it something about the receptor itself? Are there different receptors for bad things and good things? And what Emily Trummel, a graduate student in the lab, did was to use genetic tools to inactivate the receptor in its normal context and to then move the receptor to a neuron that detected some odors that we knew were repulsive. So now we have the receptor for an attractive odor in a neuron that normally senses repellents. And Emily asked, what does the worm do? And the answer is, the worm was horrified by a diacetyl. It ran away from it as quickly as it could. So she was able to rewire the worm's nervous system and show that the way an animal knows what it likes and what it dislikes is by having cells that have what we call a valence. They have a meaning. There's a cell for attractants and a cell for repellents. Actually, there are multiple cells for each. And that the way the animal assigns something as being attractive or repellent is that it activated that cell as opposed to the other cell. So it creates what's called in neuroscience a labeled line. There's like a pre-patterned map that tells every animal from when it's born, these are the attractive things because these receptors are in those neurons. These are the repulsive things because those receptors are in other neurons. And it's a simple principle. It works really well. But again, I want to say at the time, the only systems we really understood were vision. And that's not how vision works. You don't know that someone is attractive or someone is unattractive because of a cell in your retina that was activated by that person or that animal or whatever. You know that because it's a higher order process in your brain. 
So it's a different solution in vision and smell. In smell, it's just hardwired into the nervous system all the way out at the sensory neurons. Now, you might say, well, you know, this hardwired pattern, I don't know, worms, is that really how more complex animals work? In fact, this idea has proved to be very general. So, for example, humans, as infants, really like and accept sweet tastes, and they spit bitter things out of their mouth. And Charles Zucker asked, how does the sensation of sweet and bitter compounds work in mammals, use mice and not humans, and show that it has exactly the same logic as the worm sense of smell? And he could, again, play nasty tricks on the mice and make them drink things that were bitter or spit out things that were sweet by moving the receptors around from cell to cell. So this idea of a hardwired map for smell and taste goes apparently all across animals. So what we're using is we start with a question that you might think of as a chemical question, and then we use it to start to ask questions about how the brain is organized and how it parses out information. And there have been many other questions, again, that each of these raises and that then brings you to the next question. That is super interesting. Thanks for sharing these stories. And my next question for you would be the question that I always ask on this podcast is, did you ever experience a minor tweak, major impact moment in your research? You know, I think there are a lot of ways to think about what a minor tweak, major impact moment is. And one of the things I think about a lot in science, and I think I think about this because I work on behavior, is that sometimes when we talk about something just like not working or the experiment didn't work, what we're really talking about is not whether an experiment worked, not about variability of the experiment, but about biological variability. And I think that we often underestimate how complicated the organisms are that we're working with and how many priorities they have that have nothing to do with what experiment we're trying to do or what question we're trying to ask them. So, for example, having worked on C. elegans for a long time, I can tell you that very often I or the people in my lab will be doing experiments that have to do with asking the worm to respond to odors. Does it go to this odor? Does it go to that odor? And the experiment will suddenly stop working. And the reason that it's not working is not that there's anything wrong with the odors or with the animal. The reason is that the temperature in the lab went up by half a degree Celsius. And C. elegans gets very upset when it gets warmed up, and it can detect unbelievably small differences in temperature. It can literally report in its behavior that it can tell one-tenth of a degree Celsius apart, and those will navigate its behavior. So if you give it a temperature change of a degree or two, it's not going to respond to any odor because the animal is interested in the temperature, and it's not interested in the problem that you're trying to get it to solve. So many of the experiments that we do are experiments where we're trying to Think about what the animal is doing. My postdoc advisor, Bob Horvitz, used to say that my greatness as a scientist was that I could think like a worm. And that would enable me to ask the right kinds of questions, sort of look at what it was doing and think about what it was doing and the pieces of information it was putting together. So that's one example of an experiment that we just know we have to control for because we have to think about the animal as a more complex animal, not just an animal responding to the odor we're giving it, but an animal with its priorities, an animal that's much more concerned about temperature right now or about something else. Another example of something that has that quality, again, it's, it's sort of being blind to what the organism thinks is important, is that there's some fairly complicated experiments we do in our lab where we can teach the animal about different odors. We can actually teach it that certain odors are associated with starvation that will avoid those odors in the future. Or we can pair odors with pathogenic bacteria that make the animal sick, and it will avoid those odors in the future. 
So these are pretty sophisticated forms of learning. It's maybe more than you would expect a worm to be able to do, and it's really fascinating. And that's an example of an experiment that it's really hard sometimes to make it work. And so one of the students in the lab who was trying very hard to do these learning experiments would like they would work one day and they were working for several months and he had some really interesting results. And then all of a sudden, no learning, no matter what he did. So it's like, what have we done wrong? Well, we know the temperature matters to these animals. Nope, it's not the temperature. Temperature is fine. Maybe something went wrong. Maybe the animal picked up mutations in the lab. No, we went and got frozen stocks, pure stocks. Nobody was learning. And then one day you walk into the lab and you think to yourself, what is every single thing that goes into this experiment? And of course, one thing that goes into the experiment is that we do it on Petri plates. And those Petri plates are filled with agar. That's the surface the worms are running around on. And we look at the agar and we're like, what is agar? Every person in every biology lab uses agar. You play out your bacteria on agar, you use agar for your molecular biology. We're like, what is agar? We all look at each other. What's agar? Agar is an extract of seaweed, of red algae. It's like, what kind of red algae? Well, actually, it varies. Sometimes it's one species, sometimes it's different. It turns out that there's just people who go out in boats and like soak up seaweed and then they kind of boil it and then that purifies it some and that's what you get from Sigma. And Dew went out and got agar from lots of different labs and it turns out that on some batches of agar, C. elegans will learn fine and on other batches of agar, it will not learn. And we never did figure out what it was that was bad about the bad agar. What Dew did was to just then buy one batch of agar, establish that it worked and purchase enough of it that he figured it would last him for his entire PhD thesis and he would never have to think about this again. But again, it's the things that go into your experiment, the things that you're not thinking about might be just as important as the things that do. And maybe one day we'll learn that this particular seaweed is making some sort of interesting neurotoxin sometimes and that that's what was affecting learning on another example. It's again, it's just sort of recognizing that you're working with a living organism and you're working with a set of complex reagents and that solving this problem is part of your problem. And ever since then, I've made a little game of listening to other people's stories about agar, it turns out we're not the only people who discovered that agar could have batch problems. And that there was a time back in the 1970s that there was some sort of strange agar problems associated with El Nino, a weather pattern. And you could no longer grow bacteriophage, T-phages in bacteria. People were panicking and did exactly what we did, stockpiled working batches of agar and then didn't use them again. So every scientist has to think about what exactly is going into the experiment. That's very true. And that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that story. We also recently we had a podcast with Richard Harris, and he mentioned a story of how actually the water that the lab was using from season to season, it would change. And we started like on Twitter, we started a thread. And there's like so many stories now of people reporting that their experiments don't work in the winter, and they work in the summer because of the seasonal spring water, which is very interesting, too. So yeah, it's really the little things that you have to consider. Yes, indeed. And I regret to say that at UCSF, when I was there, we discovered something that certain water sources were not good for growing the animals either. Great. So now let's shift gears a little bit. And as we already heard, you are the head of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has a very ambitious goal to support science and technology that will make it possible to cure, prevent or manage all disease by the end of this century. Can you please tell us a little bit more about CCI's initiatives and how you're going to pursue that goal? Yes, when Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan started CCI, I asked them what they were hoping that this new philanthropy would do. And they said, we really want to take a long view and ask what it would take to solve all diseases by the end of the century. And I thought, hmm, 
That's a pretty big request. But the interesting thing about it has been that taking that seriously has led in some interesting directions. So the first thing to say about that is if you look back a 100 years, what we knew, it's kind of amazing how much medicine has progressed in that time. I would say that in all seriousness, we can now cure, prevent, or manage about half of the diseases that were killing people 100 years ago. 100 years ago, there were no antibiotics. We didn't know that blood pressure was a risk for heart disease. We didn't know that cholesterol was a risk for heart disease. We didn't have statins. We didn't have stents. We didn't have any of the chemotherapies or modern cancer treatments that we have now. Science is really a successful approach for disease, and we should all celebrate that as scientists. Having said that, maybe the other half of diseases are not going to be as easy to solve as the first half. But I think the starting point of thinking about it from that perspective is to realize that science can make progress against disease and that our job is just to help that happen faster. Maybe you could say, maybe this is something that would happen in 500 years. Can we make it happen in 100 years? And so what we spend our time thinking about is what can we add to science? Because we think that there are a lot of great scientists out there. There are a lot of great funding bodies. What can we add that would accelerate science? And that's the way that we've been thinking about different problems. And the thing that we've come down to, and it's a really good match to your organization, is thinking about the importance of tools and the importance of collaboration to make science move faster. That science moves faster when people who have different kinds of expertise can work together. That's one of our big ideas. And science also works faster when people have better tools. We always symbolize that with the microscope. Before the microscope, nobody knows that the human body is made of cells. After the microscope, everyone can see for themselves that the human body is made of cells and everyone's discoveries move that much faster. And so focusing on these are ways that we can have very broad impact, not saying we want to do this disease or that disease, but what can we do that will help a lot of scientists do better work? And a lot of it is just asking them what that would look like. What does it take for them to do their work better? And part of that is just things like some of the things we've been talking about. How can we help them make their work go faster by developing different kinds of tools that they would appreciate? How can we help them share their work more quickly? We're big fans of sites like protocols.io that let people share protocols. We're fans of groups like GitHub that let people share their software code or the open source software movement. Everything that we can do that helps people combine their information, combine their knowledge, and thereby move things ahead faster. That's very great. And so, yeah, you already had a couple examples of tools. And I know that CCI is really having a big focus on supporting tools that allow scientific discovery to take place faster. But are there any other positive impacts that you see that new tools can have on science? So a big project that we're working on to try to accelerate science that's relevant for biomedical disease is a project called the Human Cell Atlas. And what that is, is a project to name all the cell types and describe them in the human body. It's to make a parts list of the human body. Now, we all know that the cell is the basic unit of life. We know that humans are made of, I think the number is about 80 billion cells, and that's a lot. But these cells fall into certain categories, and we'd like to really understand how many different kinds there are, how they're different from each other, what they have in common, what their molecular composition is, who their neighbors are, and so forth. And there's been some advances in molecular biology techniques that make that possible now that enable you to identify the RNAs present in a single cell, like a thousand point barcode, and then use that to divide cells into different categories and study them. And so we've been supporting the scientists who are excited about moving that work forward. 
Some of that is just generating large data sets from different organs of the body and then studying the individual cells there and then comparing them to other data sets of other organs in the body. So to one extent, the human cell atlas itself is a tool. It's a resource. It's a collection of information about different cell types. And then there are also a set of tools that have to be made for the human cell atlas to work. There had to be a lot of technology development to figure out how to very reliably identify the RNA in a single cell. There was a lot of analytical technologies to basically figure out how to compare data sets. There are certain statistical properties of this kind of data that are different from most things we're working on. We had to support a number of computational people who are doing that work, in addition to the experimental people who are generating the data sets. And then finally, we were supporting the different kinds of data databases that allow you to analyze and visualize and share these data with other scientists. So we see the tool building as the data itself as a tool, the analysis of the data of the tool, sharing the data with other people as the tool. And as we were working on this, the COVID-19 pandemic came along, which is a terrible thing that's happening in real time. And all of a sudden, we find that a lot of scientists are really looking to try to accelerate research. They really want to learn as much as they can about this virus as quickly as possible. And from that, people very rapidly identified the molecules, the receptors that SARS-CoV-2, the virus, was using to enter into and infect different cells in the body. And we realized we have this huge data resource, and we can identify from that data resource every cell that expresses these receptors. So that was something where we could say very quickly, there were some questions. For example, one of the things that happens in COVID-19 that's sort of close to my own research interest is that people lose their sense of smell, coming all the way back to buttery popcorn here. And the question is, is that because the virus is infecting the olfactory neurons? Is it actually infecting neuronal cells? Or is it because it's affecting some other cell type in the nose? And the answer is really clear. The virus leaves the neurons alone. The virus is infecting other cells in the nasal epithelium. The virus also is associated with different kinds of problems in the lung in different locations. And it turns out that there are very specific subsets of cells in the lungs that express the receptors that we're now learning are infected by the virus. And similarly, the virus causes cardiovascular problems. And it turns out that some of the cells associated with blood vessels also express the receptors for the virus. Same with the kidney. So having this cell atlas is letting people figure out very quickly how the virus might be having its effect and design experiments to test that and figure out what's happening to those cell types. So the thing that was amazing about the cell atlas is that we could create something we call the COVID cell atlas, where we put together all the cells that look like they could be infected by the virus, by the coronavirus. Scientists can now screen through those cells and see if some of them are affected and if so, what happens. And the thing that's kind of amazing is that this is a tool that we built and the experiments for it were done literally before the virus existed, before it was infecting and moving through the human population. And yet it could be used to gain new insight into the virus. And we're really pleased to be able to accelerate research by having all of that data right there in place so that people can get started and move to the next step of understanding disease processes. Yeah, that is very exciting. And I've been following the human cell atlas efforts since quite a while now. And it's very interesting to see how now actually that research can directly benefit to accelerate the research on that. Are there any other things that CCI is doing to support the COVID-19 research? We have a fantastic, close, collaborative relationship at CZI with an organization called the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. It's a research institute in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it includes scientists who work there, but also scientists from Stanford and UCSF and UC Berkeley who use this as a collaborative site for tool development 
and for just devising new experiments that they can do in collaboration that they normally couldn't do from their different schools. And the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub has been a very innovative research site that has been able to do some exciting work on COVID-19. Among other things, they have worked very quickly to help increase testing capacity in the San Francisco Bay Area, but also to start to develop new molecular tools to do things like really deeply understand the transmission of viruses between different individuals so that you can understand how the virus is spreading and do work in infectious disease. And so this is an example of something where tool building can be applied to new problems. And where also, again, software and data sharing that comes from CCI is being put together with a set of experimental biologists and physicians to try to work on a new problem. That's great. And so we've been talking a lot about tools and different tools that CCI is supporting and a whole bunch of different other tools. But my last question always on this show is if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that might not exist yet, that would make the life of researchers easier and the work more efficient, what would that be? And this is our fun question and really any answers are allowed. Oh, I'm not a lot of fun. So I'm sure that you get better answers out of other people. I would like to just be able to say what I want in terms of things like writing down what I did. I would like to be able to say, hey, I just did this injection and I injected six worms and this happened and I picked them off and I put them there and have that all written down and organized. And I would like a tool where I could also just ask my computer to write code and it would just like figure out how to do it by itself. I feel like I'll know that artificial intelligence is really working when artificial intelligence can write software code for me. That would be really cool. Corey, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Wonderful talking to you, Anita. Have a good day. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.